The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we are joined by John Glover, who our audiences certainly know from film, movies including Payback, Batman and Robin, Love, Valor, Compassion, Scrooge, Gremlins 2, Julia, Annie Hall, television work, five Emmy nominations for Smallville on television, now starring at Roundabout Theater Company's presentation of The Marriage of Bet and Boo, playing the role of Carl Carter. Carl Hudlock. Other credits in theater on Broadway include The Drowsy Chaperone, Love, Valor, Compassion, for which he won the Tony and the Obie Awards, Design for Living, Frankenstein, The Importance of Being Earnest, and The Great God Brown, for which he did win the Drama Desk Award, and many, many other off-Broadway shows. John, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you. It's nice to be here. John, both John and I do a lot of reading as we prepare for these interviews, and what was really striking to me was in reading interviews with you... Uh, there are two constants. They get your name right. <laughs> Which is important. And, and within the first two paragraphs, they use the word villain. Oh, yeah. And I wondered, generally, over this broad career, do you think of yourself as villainous? And do you think that the characters you play are, in fact, villains? I, I think that's from the film stuff. Um, which tend to type I, films and TV tend to type people because they're I think less willing to take chances on people so they go with what they know so that's kind of how I started with the, um, you know in Julia I played a smarmy son of a bitch and um, in 52 Pickup I played a villain so that's how I gotten typed so let's go to the marriage of Bet and Boo do you see Carl Hudlock, the father of <laughs> character Boo, as uh, as being a bad guy? He's certainly sharp. He's sharp. It's the gin. <laughs> <laughs> I think when he's sober, he's an okay guy. But unfortunately, in the play, you never see him that way. Um, he's tough. And I, I think it's one of the reasons I chose to do the play, because I... Uh, the role scared me a little, so I didn't know how I was going to, how I could do it. So I took it. <laughs> Does that make any sense? But I. But what what scared you? How to make him human? He seemed like such a uh, such a, a villain or such a. Uh, car- I could find nothing redeeming about him. Well, he's he's a very nasty man to his wife and to his son yeah. and to anybody that he deals with. Yeah. And it's, it's probably kind of difficult for anybody to say anything nice about the guy, what his, his redeeming values are. So what did you find in him that, that I, makes him a real person and I, makes him... I'm not sure. I, it's, I, every night I, I, uh, I have this challenge, um, but I brought it on myself, so I'm <laughs> going with it, and, I'm, and, and uh, I'm having a good time doing it. I feel terrible uh, some scenes when I come off stage. It's just my insides eat it. Um, he's very toxic, the man. So it's not always pleasant to play, but I I saw it as a big challenge. Well, from rehearsals then to previews now that the show has opened, has the character evolved? Has your portrayal evolved? Have you discovered different things about... Uh, oh, he's gone all over the place. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He was... Um, for, for the first part of rehearsal, Walter Bobby, the director, kind of left me alone, and I could see him, you know 
talking to other people. I thought, well, why is he doing that? And then slowly he started on me because um, I kind of went everywhere. I just tried everything I could, which he, you know, was gave me full gave us all full reign. It was a very wonderful, fun, open um, rehearsal period, and and then we started. I guess with me subtracting. And I spent a long time in previews in front of an audience not knowing where I was or what I was doing or just kind of up in the air, you know, with my feet not on the ground. Well, the play is based on Christopher Durang's real life, at yeah. least somewhat based on it. Oh, so yeah. the character you play is, in essence, his paternal grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ask Chris Durang about his grandfather? Um at a certain point, yeah, I wanted I wanted just to go first, you know, because I I grew up in a, a, a family of alcohol. Um, I mean, it, kind of in the fifties and sixties, that's what everybody did. They socialized with drinks, um, and he's a lot like my dad, except my dad didn't get uh, mean, but. Um, so, so th there was a, a lot that I knew that I was was going to play. It got it, and it got upsetting some days. It was, um, like I said, not always pleasant for a play that is so insanely funny. As the <laughs> as Father, what's his name, says, it's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, priest in the show. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it is a comedy with such incredibly dark elements in the cast coming together to work on it with Walter were you treating it as a comedy were you treating it as a drama in which the humor comes out I don't know we were exploring we mm -hmm. you know we were I mean their their laughs people laughed through rehearsal um it was a great rehearsal period I I wish I could be more specific about what happened? But I know we we went everywhere. I think everybody did. Well, how how involved was Chris Durang in in the staging of the he, show? In the staging, I, in the staging, I don't know how involved he was, but he was in most rehearsals. And when we would um, when we'd be talking about things, when you know discussions would happen, and we'd be going kind of in one direction, he said, "If I may," or mm -hmm. very politely and gently. This is what I intended when I wrote that. And we'd listen to that, and then other things would become clear, mm -hmm. and we'd go off in a different direction. He he spoke to most of us one-on-one uh, -on -one at some point to kind of explain things and what the real structure of that of his family was. Some some were pared down. The uh, Boo's uh, in-laws were pared. Uh, not in-laws. Boo's family was pared down a bit. That was a bigger family. Um, so but it's interesting. Were, Chris wrote uh, for the published edition of the play about the fact that there were there were elements of the story he could not change, and specifically the na his father's nickname, and that uh, his grandfather did indeed call his father Boar. Boar, yeah, yeah. Um, did you? You always have a responsibility, especially when the playwright is right there, to 
to the words on the page. Mm-hmm. How much did you feel the responsibility not only to the words on the page, but to the person who who'd lived this and whose family you were cre- recreating to some degree? Sixty <laughs> percent. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. <laughs> but a, a large responsibility, but but there's also reasons why certain actors were chosen or cast so that they could bring what they brought and why Walter was directing it as opposed to Jerry Zach's directing it again. You know, it was it was a, a, a different look at somebody else's interpretation of uh, of the play. Well, let's jump back and talk about how you got started on stage. Um, what did the Glover family say when young John said, uh, I think I'd like to go into theater? That I I was at college. I went to a state teachers college in Baltimore, Towson State Teachers College, because I'd done a couple of plays in high school, and I knew I loved it. I always loved the movies about the theater. You know, I didn't see a lot of theater. I grew up in a little town in Maryland, Salisbury, and I'd never been to New York before my freshman year in college. So I'd never seen a Broadway show till till then. So my mother grew up down in a little town called Pulaski, Virginia, which is very near in southwest Virginia, which is near a town called Abingdon, Virginia, which is where Bob Porterfield started the Barter Theater in the Depression. So after Easter vacation of my freshman year in college, she called me. She'd been to visit her mother, and she said, there's a theater down there. They have an apprentice program, and I got you uh, an application. So you have to get a couple of letters of recommendation and... Um, you might be accepted. Do you want to do that? So I got my letters of recommendation and uh, and went and was a um, a slave at a summer theater. Well, can you explain? Because the barter theater was a pretty unique operation. Sure. It, it literally started because people could bring things barter and barter their way for into their, their tickets. Theater. Was that even still going on at the point? Because I understand could, it lasted quite a while. You could get in that way, but people mm-hmm. paid. But by the six, it was 63, 64, and 65 that I was there. And if you brought a ham, they'd give you a ticket and you could get in. <laughs> but Mr. Porterfield would always make a curtain speech. Uh, what would he say? He said, well, you know, those first few years, we didn't make any money, but we all gained a lot of weight. He'd always crack his voice on the punchline when he made his curtain speech. So what what did you do in your indentured servitude at the bar? I did everything. I, we, I painted sets. I was the lighting assistant's um, a lighting designer's assistant, so I got to go home from strike early and get some sleep on strike night because I had to get up early and go focus the lights. But the first year I was there, I played the lead in Look Homeward Angel. I'd finished my freshman year in college. I'd been in two plays in high school and a couple of plays in college, and they cast me as uh, Eugene Gant in Look Homeward Angel with uh, Ned Beatty and Jerry Harden uh, were in the company. Um, I... I've always been kind of lucky. Well, w- when you were a kid in the 1950s, what was your first um, theater that you saw? Was it local productions, high school productions? Did you see professional theater? Uh, third grade, I did go uh, on Easter vacation. Easter uh-huh. vacation was always big for me, I uh-huh. guess, to see uh, to over to Washington, which was two hours away, and we saw the National Company of Oklahoma. Uh-huh. It, Florence Henderson was playing it, and Barbara Cook said I just missed her because she either hadn't gone in it yet, or, or but I would have seen mm-hmm. Barbara when I was when I was eight. So, <laughs> did you know then that you wanted to work in theater, or did that come later that you discovered? Well, I didn't think it was possible. I mean, it always intrigued me, and I loved it, and it's what I wanted. But I didn't think I, I was this little kid from a little town in Maryland. It was actors were people who lived in New York. I, 
or so I didn't think it was possible. What did you think you were supposed to do? Then? Well, I didn't know for the longest time. You know, when we had all those future this is and that's mm-hmm, in, the, mm-hmm, in high school, mm-hmm. I joined the future teachers because mm-hmm. that's what most of my uh, friends were going to be teachers. So I figured I would teach English maybe and then do a couple of drama courses and direct the plays. But in 2001, you were quoted in the New York Times as saying you were terrified of being a teacher. Well, I, yeah, I am. I would. I am. I, but so I was. afraid to be a teacher. Yeah. How do you become an actor if you're afraid to well, teach? Well, I went down to the barter, and I and they let me act alongside of people who were actors in New York making a living. So I thought, duh. So <laughs> you can do that, too. If they can, you can, because I was acting with them. So I did it. Well, I'm, I'm sure we have many teachers listening to this program. What What was that about being a teacher that terrified you so? I guess the responsibility of... In- molding young lives uh-huh. I, to stand up in in front of a classroom for six hours a day and impart knowledge i mm-hmm. i it's such an amazing responsibility to me and i didn't know how i could possibly do it hmm. have, have, i'm an interpretive artist i say other people's <laughs> words so have you ever taught well i go back to towson which is now towson mm-hmm. university and has mm-hmm. a quite a wonderful theater department and i spend a week or so Every semester I can with the students and kind of clue them into the the real life and the and the fact that it's not all just being rich and famous. You gotta have a you gotta enjoy it. They say, "What is it? What is it that we'll do that that'll that'll make us make it?" And I finally realized you gotta love it because you don't always make it, but if you love the work, you'll be happy doing it. So, so since since it's not teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, is this less terrifying teaching? Oh, much. Your yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I know about that. So mm, exactly. w- what they want is, is common knowledge or, you know, my experience kind of knowledge. So that's what I can just <laughs> do that. Well, you commented that you hadn't seen Broadway theater and coming out of the barter and presumably completing the degree at Towson. How did you find your way into a professional career? What were the what were the next opportunities? The next I, steps. I moved as soon as I graduated college. I moved to New York. And was that your first time coming to New York? Or no, 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 no. I would up co- by that. No, well, by, by Easter vacation of my fresh, freshman year, I came every holiday I could and uh-huh. saw as much theater as I could. But it was cheap then. I mean, the orchestra seats were seven fifty or under when I started. Hmm. So you, you, everybody could go to the theater and get really good seats. That first year, I was uh, that first Easter. Um, there was a play called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that I'd been told was pretty good I should go see. And I think it had just opened, so I went to the box office. It was a matinee day because there was a big line for a matinee, and I asked for a single ticket, and the guy said, I got a pair here. I said, well, I'll take one. He said, but I got to sell it as a pair. And I think it was like third or fourth row center for the for the 8 o'clock show. So the woman behind me bought a ticket and we went. She wept through most of the first act. I had, I thought, what's going on? She said, you've got to forgive me. I'm going through a very terrible divorce and this is very painful for me. Hmm. I, I, I didn't know what was happening. Well, I was a young kid, but but I saw it there. What else? With a Days and Nights of B.B. Fenstermaker and um, uh, Anne Bancroft was doing Mother Courage at the Martin Beck with Zora Lambert and Barbara Harris. It was very exciting. And, any, any musicals back then? that you saw, or was it mostly plays that you were interested in? No, I've always loved musicals. That's why I had such a... I mean, that's why The Drowsy Chaperone was such a, <laughs> a, a windfall for mm-hmm. me, because I can't sing. 
but I sing all the time, but I'm usually off key. But in this, you know, in Drowsy Chaperone, it didn't matter. Yeah, so by the time sing. I sang, mo- many nights it was off key, but but it worked. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I was okay. Mm-hmm. What did I see? Uh, the musicals. I remember I went to see, a, we drove up to Philly when I was a senior in college and saw the um, uh, MAME at the at the Schubert in Philadelphia and then stayed for the photo call because I knew somebody who knew somebody who was in the show. So we watched um, the photo call, was, which was better than any backstage movie about, um, I mean, there was Angela Lansbury out talking to everybody. It was a dream come true. Hmm. They even gave us a sandwich. You know, that sandwich <laughs> <day. Really? laughs> I don't think they do photo calls anymore, really. They do it, you know, they, they come in during the show and, uh, and take pictures during. Hmm. Uh, so getting to New York after college. Oh, yeah. So I got on the bus and moved to New York. And... Um, I knew some people from the barters. Oh, uh, uh, Greg Abels, who was the press guy down at the barter, got me a theater at the the new theater. David Black was doing uh, the Mad Show at the the new theater over where they built an office building there now. And at the 81st Street Theater was the Kitchen, the Arnold Wesker play with uh, hmm. Sylvia Miles and Rip Torn. So I ushered. And then those all closed, and I went to work at the National Repertory Theater the year they invented zip codes and uh, zip-coded their entire mailing list. <laughs> I would go in at 9 in Thus the morning and stay a little the is made. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, my first job, uh, Fran and Barry Weisler uh, had a touring company of uh, elementary schools. In New Jersey, mostly. We, we went New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. Oh. We would get a uh, – there were uh, – through six, seven, eight of us, we'd get in a station wagon. The The bad seats were the two facing the back. <laughs> um, and there was a U-Haul trailer on the back. We'd drive out to wherever we were going, set up the set in the, either the cafeteria or the auditorium, do the show. It was the adventures of young Tom Sawyer. I was Huckleberry Finn. Mm. And, uh, and do the show twice a day. Did you have to do the setup as well as act? We'd set up. We'd take the set down after. We'd have lunch in the cafeteria with the kids, do our show, and then we did everything. Huh. There was a stage manager, a, a musical director, and the actors. Probably a very, yeah. very good learning curve. Oh, it was. It was. Hmm. And then I, they were expanding and doing a high school tour the next year, and I got that but quit because I got a job at Stage West uh, Theater in, uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Jamie Cromwell was the artistic director, and his father, John Cromwell, the director who was married to Ruth Nelson, who was in the group theater, were in the company. Hmm. It was very exciting. And what was that show in Springfield? We did a whole season. We uh-huh. started with The Country Wife. Uh-huh. We were then going to do Uncle Vanya, but the people in Springfield, Massachusetts, were coming to see The Country Wife, so we changed Uncle Vanya to Charlie's Aunt. <laughs> and I, got, I got all my roles upgraded. I got the last equity job. That's where I got my equity contract. And I had all, I was going to play Yakov, the little serving guy that comes to the window and says, the stage is ready, sir. But I got to play Charlie and Charlie's aunt instead. And having myself have uh, relatives in Springfield and Westfield, I know that audience and I know why oh, they would yeah, prefer well, that. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I can understand yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's jump ahead. Uh, in terms of New York theater, um, you were a replacement in the original production of what is now a very acclaimed show, which was House of Blue House Leaves. House of Blue Leaves, sure. So how did how did that come to be? And at that time, you were at something called the Truck and Warehouse Theater, not uh, not a major venue, as, as I recall. No, that's where the uh, theater. Um, what's there now? It's across from the old La Mama. Um, it's the where they do the 
New York Theater it's Workshop. It's where Rant started. New York Theater Workshop. Yeah, that is oh, the really? truck. That's the truck and warehouse. Huh. That's what it was. Um, but I'd been in a play called Ascent of Flowers in six, somewhere in 69. 69, sure. Yeah. That was off Broadway at the little Martinique Theater. Remember the Martinique Theater? In the Before Martinique Hotel on 32nd Street. Can't oh, say that you I guys, what's wrong with you all? <laughs> um, um, so I'd been in some plays in New York. Mm-hmm. I'd come from, um, I'd been up in, uh, at Hartford doing Long Day's Journey into Night. I remember I got a really nice review in the New York Times for that. So maybe they remembered me when hmm. it was time for Bill Atherton to leave House of Blue Leaves. Hmm. And then. Uh, about two years later, uh, actually really just about a year or so later, um, you got involved with the New Phoenix Repertory yeah. and made your Broadway debuts, really, because you were in True Rep. Can you talk a little about the shows and what New Phoenix Rep was? It was from the Phoenix, uh, Edward uh, Hamilton, uh, the um, a- and the APA and I guess the Phoenix kind of joined forces. Right. And um, uh, Stephen Porter was one director. Hal Prince was the other director. And the first season, they did um, Moliere's Don Juan and The Great God Brown. And I read The Great... Because uh, I loved O'Neill, so I read The Great God Brown, and I thought, I've got to be in this play. So I went and auditioned for Dion. And uh, Michael Montel, the casting director, called me and said, to, Hal wants to see you again, Hal Prince. <laughs> I'd been to audition for him on the set of the... Um, of Follies at the Winter Garden, which was incredibly thrilling. And um, and I went, oh, God, what do, I, what do I do? He said, no, 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 he just wants to talk to you. Don't, don't. So I went to his house, and he asked me up in his office, and I sat there across from him and said, uh, he said, so you want to be in this play, huh? He said, yeah, I want to I play uh, Diane. He said, well, I got one better for you. I'd like you to play Billy Brown. And I think when I got up off the floor, he asked me if I wanted a beer, and I said yes. And, and we sort of had a talk, and I was uh, – so I, I – like I said, I've always been lucky. Or My friend Jane Cronin says that. He said, Glover, you're lucky. You're blessed. So. Did you did you ask him? Did you figure out why he specifically wanted you for that role as opposed to what you thought he wanted you for? He's a very smart guy, and I figured he saw something in me. He gave, I was Michael Montel was at the Betten Boo on Sunday, and I was talking about how because I he, he's a lot of the reason I am who I am, I guess, and uh, and he gave me one of the best pieces of direction any director's ever given me. He said at one point I don't even remember when, but he said this this man is afraid of being second rate, and it just unlocked doors for me. I I don't know why. I didn't ask why. I thought if I asked, maybe he'd take it away from me. (laughs) He'd change his mind. Yeah. 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 So I I just uh, did it. Just say, yes, sir, I'll take the job. (laughs) Yes, sir. Sure. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Had that been your first opportunity to work in rep? Because you did it both that season and the subsequent season. There were another two or three plays. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, that was. And then after that, I did a lot. I went down to San Diego. I've worked a couple of seasons at the uh, Shakespeare Festival there. And at Stratford, uh, Connecticut, I worked a, a season of rep. So I've done it uh, uh, more than a lot of American actors have. I don't. They, I guess we don't really have much 
there's few opportunities. Right. Very we've, we've few. We've talked to, on this program, we've talked to some of the people who were in Coast of Utopia, which was sort of like being in rep because they did different plays yeah. on different nights and often played different characters. But, yeah. but there are few opportunities now. Yeah. And you really did work your way through so many of the regional theaters. There was a period you were down in Philadelphia at the Drama Guild. And then I've gone back a, a few years ago. I, I did this series for seven years, so I, uh, every hiatus I would find a play somewhere that would fit into my vacation slot so I could uh, keep my feet wet. Hmm. Uh, so a couple of them were down at, at the um, Philadelphia Theater Company. We just New opened reason. a new theater that's gorgeous. Beautiful. That old space. Plays and Players there on Delancey Street. With It's a beautiful little gem of a theater, but... Full of must and mold needs to be redone. But they have their own theater now. So well, over the that. over the years, you've done a lot of work in Philadelphia or mm-hmm. at the McCarter outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. Any particular reason? I mean, is it the city? Is it the work that they do? The theaters there? It's, or did it just happen? I guess it's the universe calling me to Philadelphia. Uh-huh. I love Philadelphia. Uh-huh. I have a lot of friends in Philly. I go there a lot. I love to go there. It's a great city. It's kind of halfway between New York and Maryland, where you grew mm-hmm. up. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. And I understand how they talk. They talk funny, too, like they did in Baltimore, you know. Do they? <laughs> it's, it's close, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you, know, you had the period in Philadelphia. You mentioned San Diego. I first started getting to see your work when you were working a good bit in New Haven in the late 70s and early oh, sure. 80s. At, at the Long Wharf and, and at the Yale Rep. And Yale Rep. Um, it's interesting because you had that period on Broadway in 72, 73. You were back to Broadway in a production of The Importance of Being Earnest in 77. And then I have to ask you about the first of your Broadway shows that I saw, the legendary production of Frankenstein <laughs> at the Palace Theater. Frankenstein in, uh, live at the Palace. In the early 80s. Yeah. Um, Frankenstein, for those who don't recall, was a specialist effects extravaganza, but it was certainly seen from the outside as a somewhat troubled show. Three mm-hmm. different actors, as I recall, ended up playing the title role during the course of previews. Um, two. I, well, I, 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 you, you I, would know better than I, I but uh, my recollection was three, but again, but it was a show that closed on opening night, yeah. uh, ultimately. Can you just talk about that show? Because it's at the time, it was, I believe, the most expensive play ever produced on it was, Broadway. With a million dollars, I think. Yeah. I don't know. It was troubled. I remember when the fire marshals came in and took away half the sets because something wasn't right. There there were there was there were demons around somewhere i don't know wh- what was happening we didn't know but it started out very positively and everybody was very excited about it and then it just I remember the elevators broke in the palace um, i mean stuff happened the uh, stage elevators or the, the or elevators, the elevators that, in the that got the actors up all, the, yeah. all to the dressing rooms and things uh-huh. just things were were happening all over the theater Maybe it was the palace ghost. I don't know. <laughs> I think we were before our time. Why do I you think, say that? Well, there hadn't been shows like that. But if you look at theater now with all the effects and things, it's what it's what sells tickets. It surely was a spectacle as, as someone it, who got it, to see it. It, I it, say it was that. like a um, when I was a, a kid and we used to go to the matinee movies. You know, you'd go and, and get in. Uh, it, w- it was pure entertainment with, with thrills and... I remember the ding. There was this ding dong that what we called the ding dong, this big thing that came down to make Frankenstein happen, and and then there was a another part toward the end of the show where Diane Weist, who played the ingenue, was um, in her boudoir, and you know that the 
the creature was there somewhere, but you didn't know where, and all of a sudden the, the, this huge drape kind of fell, and the audience would scream. I mean, they had a good time, the audiences, but... Uh, well, you mentioned the Diane Weiss. didn't like us. <laughs> right around the same time from this spectacle, this almost theme park of a show in some ways, yeah. you also ended up doing um, doing Hedda Gabler with Diane Weiss with right Diane, at the same yeah. time. She was genius in that part. Just genius. She's funny, too. She's a funny, funny lady. She... Uh, when it was her opening night gift for Frankenstein, she had a little a raw hot dogs in a glass uh, Stein, so a Frank in Stein. <laughs> she just giggled and giggled, giving them out. She was so happy. <laughs> I would think there's the happiest anybody ever was during that show. It got to be pretty gloomy around the palace backstage <laughs> during well, Frankenstein. As, as you are going through rehearsals and previews, approaching opening night, certainly recognizing that there are things amiss, things that are not quite coming together. Did you have any idea that it would close after that first opening night performance? And then when no. it did, what did that do to you as an actor? I don't... I know we were all surprised, very surprised. And we went to... They met with us and told us we, we were closing. Where did they meet with us? Maybe in Sardis? I'd lost my voice. Uh, so I had a doctor's appointment with Dr... Who was the big voice doctor then? That's not important. Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. By that time, everybody moved over to Joe Allen's. And, and, uh, and I came back from my, uh, my voice doctor, and everybody had been sending bottles of champagne to the table. So everybody was just under the table by that point. Then there was a little, maybe a little rumor that it was going to, maybe they were going to open it again. But that didn't happen. I don't know. We went off and... I don't even remember what I did next. Well, I probably went to some regional theater somewhere and did a play. I don't know. <laughs> did, did they post the closing notices that night or the next day after the reviews came out? The next day. They, they, we, had, we met. We had a meeting. Uh -huh. I think it, they wanted to meet and talk to us all at Sardis. I think they told us they, uh -huh. that, that we were closing. So uh, then did that basically shake all of you up, not having a job? You know, you've put your, all your efforts into this one show and suddenly it, I, it closes. I don't know if we... I don't remember. I don't remember any of that. I was so used to just going from one job to the other that uh -huh. I figured I'd. I didn't have a high overhead, so well, I. It was, I don't it was, remember it being. It was kind of the life of an actor versus what a teacher would have. You know, <laughs> exactly. Looking forward to spring vacation. Well, it's yeah. always, always that way. <laughs> I did a play of. I did a Juno and the Peacock out at the Mark Taper Forum with uh, Jack Lemon, Walter Matthau, and Maureen, Maureen Stapleton. And they they uh, taped it for the Lincoln Center. But uh, George Seaton was the director, was a film director, you know, directed Mil Miracle on 42nd Street. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was it, right? Yeah. And um, so uh, they moved the whole set to a TV studio, uh, you know, no expense spared. And they really did it with three cameras, like a TV show and everything. And Walter and Jack walked down to the Hollywood Ranch Market there on Vine to, when we were almost done, to buy the crew some beer cases of beer and they were in their costumes and Jack was playing joxer you know so it was near to rags and everything and they figured they'd just go nobody <laughs> know him or anything and Jack came back shaken it was like he'd seen a ghost and Maureen said what happened Jack he said well I'm standing there paying for the beer and this guy walks up to me he's kind of dressed like me and goes Jack Lemon 
and you'll never work again. <laughs> and it scared the crap out of him. He thought, you know. So that's when I realized that it's that way with all actors at all times. Every time you finish a job, you think, okay, this is it. Now they know about me, and I'm never going to work again. I've been found out. Well, the reverse of that, of course, is that you had already begun getting some very noticed roles in films, you know, at this time. You've already mentioned that during the seven years on the series, and I assume you're alluding to Smallville, Smallville as you talked yeah, yeah. about it, that you kept coming back to theater. Did you have to consciously work to keep a balance between film work and theater work in this in this period now into the 80s? Because um, I would assume the lure of, of the West Coast and of, of film and television would, could be significant. During Smallville, my agent would call, and right around the time it was ready for hiatus, he said, you've been offered da-da-da. Right, but I'm thinking about back in the days in the 80s when you were, were you know, going from regional theater to regional theater, but these films kept coming, you know, coming I along. I just wanted to work. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, I was going to um, San Diego for, like, my second rep season. And I remember my agent called and said, please don't go. Stay in New York for a while. Things are starting to happen for you. If you're going away for over four months, please stay. But the parts were too good. I wanted to play him. Well, let's jump forward now, because speaking of good parts, and and we've been talking about the West Coast, 1994, going off-Broadway to do Love, Valor, Compassion at MTC. How did that come about? You'd obviously worked early on in a Terrence McNally play, but... I had done... um, I had... He'd written me a postcard about... uh, uh, um, What was the play he wrote about the opening night? Um, remember um, the opening night of the play oh, I can't remember names anymore anyway he they were doing it out at the um, Amundsen and he'd written me a little postcard uh, and it had his phone number on it so I went to see Lips Together Teeth Apart in New York at the Manhattan Theater Club and I knew they did his plays in LA so I got home to LA where I was living I called him up and said if they do it out at the music center could I play that part in it and sure enough, he let me play it. And I remember one night uh, when we were in tech rehearsals or dressing d- dress rehearsals, he said, I'm working on a new play that I'm writing, and I've started writing it with your voice in mind. And it turned out to be the Jekyll twins in Love, Valor, Compassion. But it's interesting. You say voice. It's two characters. And very often when people double in the same play, they're playing small roles. This was not a small role and two fully formed people in but the same that, but show. That, but he wrote that part for an actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's... Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. So, but what did he ever tell you what about your voice said you were the ask. person to <laughs> play both of, <laughs> of <laughs> these people? No, I don't know. No. And like, like I didn't ask Hal Prince why he chose me. I didn't ask Terrence what he heard. Sometimes it's better not to ask. What is it? I can't remember. Never mind. Go on. But the the, the uh, two characters, the uh, the Jekyll brothers, John and James, were were very different characters. So it gave you, I would presume, an opportunity to develop two different persona. Oh, although it, they were brothers. Oh yeah, it was one of the best parts I've ever played. I mean, it's a he. I I did a, another play more recently that he wrote, Some Men, that we we started down in Philadelphia. That I had. I mean, we all played a lot of parts in that. It was a, I don't know, did you see it at the, when they did it at Second Stage? It's a wonderful play, but one of the plays was about a drag queen called Bunny. 
and it uh, happens at the at a piano bar down in the village, right across Sheridan Square from the night that the Stonewall riots happened, the day of Judy Gar, the night of the day of Judy Garland's funeral, and um, this drag queen named Bunny comes into the piano bar um, and speaks a lot of profanity, um, and changes some lives while she does it. It ends up singing um, somewhere over the rainbow, and I'm after Terence to to write a full-length play. I've got this idea that mm-hmm. it'll, with Bunny and with a best friend played by Marion Seldes, to, you know, <laughs> getting... Oh, it's just wonderful. So I keep trying to get him to write this How play. How does that go when you go to a playwright saying, won't you write this? <laughs> That's why I just said it. Well, he did say that sounds like a good idea. So we'll see. Maybe he'll hear this and get... It'll plant the seed even deeper down inside him. I hope so. Love. Uh, he, he, he's a great writer, and I've been very lucky to to work with him as many times as I have. Love Valor certainly was a part you lived with for quite a while, because as we look over your your theatrical career, so much of it was regional theater and institutional mm-hmm. theater, mm-hmm. relatively short runs. This is one where you started off Broadway, it moved to Broadway, mm-hmm. and and what was that the opportunity to stay with a character? For, for for such a relatively long period of it time. It was wonderful. It was a year, I guess, about, mm-hmm. about a year, a little m- more, I guess, from when we closed to from when we started rehearsal to when we closed, and then a year later we went back and and made a, a, a the film of it, uh, which was the same group, save uh, Nathan who was busy and Jason Alexander came in. We were exhausted because the show was three hours. It's kind of, I guess, like the August Osage uh, Osage County people are now exhausted because theirs is over three hours, I think. Hmm. And and we played those five show weekends because they figured the Wednesday matinees wouldn't sell. So we did two Saturday, two Sunday. So we were always exhausted. But vibrant, I think, because the play is so rich. Hmm. So it was was never dull. It was always, uh, always very exciting. Very exciting. So many of the plays that you do are are new work where the character is, is new, someone to be discovered. Do you enjoy that, developing a new character, creating oh. the character? Oh, golly, yeah. I think the the hardest responsibility is to play a, a living person and someone who's a, a famous living person. And I admire those actors who take on that challenge to play those. I've Have you ever done that? No. I, think, I don't think. <laughs> oh, I have no memory anymore. It would so kind of be kind of like being a teacher to be terrifying, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if the real person went to the scene show. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh my golly. Yeah. Have you ever had to play a teacher on stage? A t- oh, five finger exercise. Uh-huh. That was a tutor. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had a grand time with that. <laughs> See, it's okay on stage because you were like doing I, somebody else's lines. Exactly. Wrote it, right? I'm an interpretive artist. Yeah, yeah. it's it's what it is. Yeah. Obviously, we can't talk about every show you've done, but I was sort of fascinated when I discovered that you had played the title role in Hans Christian Andersen at the American Conservatory Theater, because I didn't think of that as being a part you would play. How did that come about, and what was the approach to that show, which has been done for the stage several times Um, in different ways? uh, Martha Clark was the director, so a lot of it focused on her uh, movement, but it was still using stuff. the Frank Lesser score? The Frank Lesser score, but there was a text... Oh, and I've forgotten the the name of this wonderful uh, Irish kind of poet. Sebastian Barry. Sebastian Barry wrote the 
uh, uh, script. So it was, I'm not a singer, but but they kept going, yes, you can sing, you can sing this. And I had all those incredible songs to sing. It, and it, it didn't, the play, it didn't work. But do you recall how they, let's, before we get to that, oh. do you recall how they came to you? Because you were not at this point, no they, one was looking at you as a musical performer. They went, I went into, um, to sing an audition for uh, Martha and huh. Sebastian, I think. And I, uh, I think what did it for me was they were going to hire a, a young child to play uh, young Hans Christian Andersen, who was going to, like, when he was in school, was going to, they had Inchworm, that song Inchworm, uh, with him singing in, in his classroom, and the teacher was berating him. Hmm. Um, so I asked if I could just read that scene, and I could see, when I read it, I saw Martha and Sebastian kind of going, oh, this could really be interesting. So I think that's why they uh, they hired me. It was one of those jobs that getting it was great because I I went to New York to sing for them all, for Joe and... Um, Joe Lesser. Joe Lesser, Lesser and everybody. Widow. So I, I went in to sang, sing a couple of songs, and I was fearless when I was auditioning. That's the funny thing. <laughs> I, I was really fearless. And the more I rehearsed, the more fearful I got. Um but when I went, they called me back in the room, and I walked in, and they all sang, "Your hands, Christian Anderson." So that was how I, yeah, I was high as a kite for a couple of days. It's kind of a nice way to get a job. Oh, it was a great way to get a to job. Have them sing it to you. Well, especially to have it happen at the audition too. That happens very rarely. You used to have to go home and wait somewhere, you know. You've mentioned several times that you're not a singer. Have you ever taken singing lessons, voice lessons? Have you ever tried to remedy that situation? Because you grew up loving musicals, listening to them on LPs. See, you're too practical. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, um, no. No? And it's the, the lazy side of me that, that I'm now copping to in front of the universe, <laughs> I guess. Aren't I? Did the idea just never occur to you? I was told when I was small that I couldn't sing, uh-huh. and I bought it. And it and it uh, uh, terrifies me, and it, and I think I'm afraid of, uh, I'm afraid of it, so I won't go face it. Well, well asking oh. now, maybe I will. You're, <laughs> Never you're too late. a ballsy guy. Never too late. <laughs> fearlessly ask me this daring question. I dare you to go take singing lessons with somebody. Mm. <laughs> All right, <laughs> thank you, John. Okay, okay, John. But since the topic of lessons comes up, I read that you started taking acting lessons late. In your later in your career, about not, seven years ago, what prompts someone who is a Tony winner with credits as long as all of our arms to suddenly begin acting lessons? I wasn't enjoying my work anymore. I wasn't happy, and uh, and this uh, uh, Milton Katsalis is the uh, teacher, and I know people who've studied with him for a long time and talked about what a, a, a wonderful teacher he is. And uh, I go to the gym with a guy who I know I knew studied with him, and I asked if I could. One day I just said, could I go sit in on a class? Hmm. So I went and uh, sat, and it made sense to me, the things he was saying to uh, to people who were doing scenes. I mean, that's it's fascinating to me. What what made sense? What were you taking out of it? How did it, how did it help you? I, I'd never studied with anybody. I always thought I didn't need to, so I... I I felt lost. I didn't know how to um, 
I'd learned a lot of bad habits. I don't. I I was stuck. I needed to get unstuck. So I tried this thing and found this teacher that I that that was making sense to me. The things he said made sense. Like a, when I watch a director work, when I usually look at it in rehearsal, when I look at what the director is telling other actors, you know, sometimes you agree with what he's saying and sometimes you think he's maybe a little insane. So, but but Milton was like one of those directors that I trusted that that was making sense. So I trusted him. So since you have started taking acting lessons now for the last seven years, has that affected your work? How, or how has that affected your work? Has it changed your approach? I love to work again, uh-huh. like I used to in the olden days. <laughs> but has it changed anything? I mean, I yes, think so. yes, you love to work, but has I, it changed the way you look at things? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I have a better attitude. Uh-huh. Um, I'm more positive about it. I, there are things I understand. I, I'm, yeah. And you see why I shouldn't be a teacher? Where <laughs> I go vague and things like that. When it's time to get specific with imparting the knowledge. So good with the stories. If I could remember the names better. <laughs> the timing of the classes, is that roughly around the time that you started doing Smallville? Yeah. So both they both kind of started at the same time, actually. Hmm. Yeah. So you had you were playing one character mm-hmm. week in and week out, at least mm-hmm. the weeks that you mm-hmm. were on the show. Uh, for seven years, so this this other this class situation, and was it was it private coaching? Were you in oh, a no, group? No, no, no. It's so, a big class, at least a hundred people. He likes he teaches in a his class is like a microcosm of the world, the industry, the whatever. You know, he said when you work, you work in front of a whole crew. You know, when it's a film, you're there working in front of a lot of people. So I want class to be like that. So you get used to. So it's a big class. And I worked a lot. I did a lot of scenes. I mean, more than a lot of people that are in the class. So let's do quick hits of the plays you've done in this period. As you mentioned early on, you were um, you were on your breaks trying to do plays. The, the first play I did was uh, Sorrows and Rejoicings, the Fugard play that that we did at uh, we did first at Princeton and then at uh, in, in New York and then out at the Taper. Um, and the next hiatus, I did two at the Bay Street out in Sag Harbor. We did um, The Lover, the uh, uh, Pinter play, and um, a Schnitzler play. Um, the name I can't remember, 21X. I don't want to start guessing it's Schnitzler. No, 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 no. With Sally Murphy, mm-hmm. who's in August Osage County now. You did a production of Time of Your Life in L.A. in this period where you were getting oh. paid $5 a performance or a week that's right in that same era we got paid (laughs) I just no but right before I came here to do uh, uh, the um, Bet and Boo I did a a Jonathan Tolan's play called The Secrets of the Trade at this little Black Dahlia Theater on Pico in LA Mm -hmm. where we were paid $15 a performance Mm -hmm. in a little 30 seat theater Hmm. you went down to Philadelphia that we've mentioned you played played the goat the goat down there and came to Roundabout where you are now in Benton Boo to do the Paris Letter, Paris Letter a few yeah. years ago, and I've read that's you. You look at that as one of the the great roles for you. Is oh, it that is. True? It's a great. It's a wonderful play. A great part. He's the he's, it, kind of like the guy in the Drowsy Chaperone too. He's the conduit with the audience. He's the storyteller. Hmm. 
Now, during this period, you're shooting up to nine months mm-hmm. out of the year, shooting up in Vancouver mm-hmm. for Smallville, mm-hmm. and yet you still wanted to do theater. Why not just take a vacation and relax a little bit? Why do you keep coming back to do theater on all these breaks? I have to. Why? Because that's who I am, I guess. <laughs> I I don't know. It's That's what's exciting to me is the live audiences. There's nothing like that in the... But no temptation to go just go lay on the beach somewhere or take a trip or no I, I can't be happy like that <laughs> I, need, <laughs> I need to work I've always been like this I just want to work like that agent you know stay mm-hmm. stay in, stay around New York for a mm-hmm. while and see what happens mm-hmm. but I could, it was too the parts were too good like well, I said. but but also going to do so many small shows why not look for a film role you know make a lot of money doing a film during those three months because they offered me the plays there was it was already a job. And it was, I mean, look at that, that part in the goat. That's a great part. So I got to do it. So let's ask about Chaperone. You've mentioned it several times. It sounds like it was a really good time for you. Oh, it to was. Get it was amazing. So, again. But that I, I had to audition for. You, so they, even at that stage, yeah. even at this stage in your career, you will go in and audition because certainly actors with, at your level of achievement won't always do that. Well, after I read the play and saw what the part was. I said first. I said, "Is this an offer?" They said, "No." They said, "But they'll." I said, "They'll fly me in, right?" He said, "No, you have to fly yourself." Wow. In. So, but then I read it. And I thought, "Okay, I'll come." And I hadn't auditioned for anything in a long time. I'm very, see now. I'm back on the market again because they killed me on Smallville. You know, <laughs> my son pushed me out of forty my forty floor uh, forty story office window. Patricide. It's somewhat of a fantasy. You could come back. <laughs> no, 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 no. I won't, though. No, I won't. Okay. No, no. What do they call? They call that the golden handcuffs. A TV series. Yeah. Um, so you fly yourself in. <laughs> you read the part. You have not seen the show. No, I hadn't seen it. Mm-hmm. Which I thought. I called up the casting director and said, uh, you know, like I haven't seen it. I can't get there in time. She said, D- that's better. Just don't. You, you show them what you have to give. And I just uh, went in and had a grand time. I thought, well, here's what I thought. It's my only chance. I mean, maybe they won't hire me, so at least I get a couple of cracks at a couple of those speeches that are so brilliant. I mean, Bob Martin wrote a great part for uh, And the thing is, it can be so many different kinds of people. Carol Kane, my friend Carol Kane came and she wanted to play it. She said, that could be a woman. I could do that. <laughs> well, I often thought they could, you know, have someone different do it like love letters where someone different could come in and do it every night because he would love it so. Oh, but the, <laughs> but the anxiety on the first night. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, I'd never had a – because of the way uh, that Smallville was running, I came in – I went in in April, but I came in February to rehearse for two weeks. And then I came back for a, about – three or four days in March and then I arrived on Friday for the put-in rehearsal and went in on Tuesday. Hmm. So we had the put-in rehearsal and with only a piano and a drummer. Yet in many ways the role is a monologue. You're not directly interacting with the other people on stage with you. Well, you but there's certain parts where you can't touch they're, them and you're not supposed to see them and you're getting there kind of dancing with them. Hmm. It was a little nerve-wracking nonetheless <laughs> on that first night. But it was when you so sit there exciting. in the dark and deliver your first oh, lines. Yeah. And Bob Martin told me, he said, when the curtain goes up and it's dark, you'll see all these cell phones on. <laughs> and sure enough, you could see people texting people and on listening to messages and things. And I thought, you stupid people. The show is starting. Turn off your cell phone, damn it. This is starting. It was well, amazing. Well, how much, uh, how similar was Man and Chad to John Glover? 
the uh, character loving theater, loving musicals. That's right. Oh, he was very similar. Uh-huh. Yeah, he he was darker than Bob Martin's The Man in the Chair. So uh, I guess it was you know well, well he, he had a little more demons than Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, all, all those uh, experiences of playing the villain all those years, I guess. I guess. On. Well, the well, well, phones would ring and things. They would get in the way of the. I got very excited about the. <laughs> it was the dream come true. I'm now, telling you. Now, when you say darker, point. how was Man in Chair darker when you were were doing it? He would get more frenzied, more upset, uh-huh. more um, <laughs> screwy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Do you want to do another musical now, now that you've had success as Man in Chair? Well, I'd have to find a teacher now, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> do you know any good ones? <laughs> Not personally. No. Yeah. I have people who do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think you want to do next after Betten Boo? Oh, I don't know. I know that I want to play. A, I want to at some point play Prospero um, soon, and I'd like to, you know, at some point before I, while I'm still capable to have a crack at Lear. I, I don't know what's. People ask me, "What are you going to do next?" I don't know. I mean, I like I say, I'm back out on the market again, so. And, of we'll course, if, if Terrence McNally is listening, maybe there's a bunny in your future. That could be great. <laughs> bunny. She was, she was a call. I could carry pictures of bunny around with me and show them to people. They were so disinterested, but I, I'll, I'll email you some, right? Please do. She, she was a lot of fun, bunny. You'd like her. Have to meet her someday. She's got a wicked mouth, though. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, John, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My, my pleasure. You guys are fun. great. Thanks. Thank you. Right. Thanks, John. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding you that these programs and all of the educational and Media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.